But what happens if there's a co-insurance penalty that says if you fail to insure the property for its value, you will essentially eat that underinsurance with us, right? So now you're underinsured by 50%, which means your $500,000 payment just became $250,000. Oh, man. They will withhold because they don't want you being able to max out a policy in an underinsurance situation. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. This is the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Galen Hare. And today we're talking about a really interesting topic that I had not thought about before. We're talking about insurance litigation. What do you do if your property insurance company underpays you or denies you on a claim where you are entitled based on the policy to a certain amount of money. What do you do? What's your recourse? And that is what Galen helps people with. He's an attorney that helps people get the correct compensation from their insurance companies when they have a valid claim. And today we're learning about why insurance companies would deny or underpay claims. That kind of seems obvious when you think about it, right? But He gets into the details as to why, what their logic is and the models that they use. We also get into ways in which we as real estate investors think about this kind of backwards, ways in which we think about it wrong, right? Where we might be getting underpaid and not realizing it and realizing that our our policy entitles us, our agreement with the insurance company entitles us to, you know, more compensation for a particular claim. So much really interesting stuff in here. We get into weather damage and and so much more. It's really, really fascinating. And this is stuff you're going to want to know if you're ever getting underpaid by an insurance company. So great conversation with Galen today. You're going to learn so much. I'm your host, Taylor Lodge. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing in one of our future syndicated real estate deals, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and take the next steps there. Once again, investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple podcast user and you enjoy the show, please to please do take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much, you guys. I really mean that. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. People see those great reviews that you guys read and they say, hey, this person learned something about escaping Wall Street and investing in real estate from the show. I better tune in. And we just love that. And and I'm always honest with you guys. And I again, I really mean this. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling when I see those reviews because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. I really appreciate it. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know it's someone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, maybe they want to get their investments out of Wall Street and into Main Street, share the show with them, bring them into the tribe, and everybody will uh, benefit from that, right? We want to share these lessons with you and with your network to help everybody take more control of their wealth generation and invest in Main Street. Once again, our guest is Galen Hare. We're talking about what you do when your insurance company underpays you or denies your claim, even though your policy or your agreement with the insurance company says that you should get paid. So really interesting stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Galen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. 
So you're in a really interesting business and, and aspect of you know real estate investing and insurance. And we'll dive into that today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, give us a quick quick introduction to what you do and you know where you're coming from. Yeah, so I'm an attorney, which probably is not the sexiest profession out there, especially when it comes to real estate investing. But what I do is I assist policyholders, whether they're investors or actual you know homeowners, with their insurance losses, advocating against the insurance company to get fair compensation. Nice, nice. And you know, there's a there's a huge topic in here, and we were talking a bit before we hit record, and I made a comment about that. You know, we've never had a dispute uh, to with an insurance company, at least to my knowledge. And I said it's all worked out, and and you had a very interesting response to that. So you know, hit us with that response when somebody says. Hey, you know, we had, you know, these issues with the insurance company, but hey, I feel like it all worked out. We were, you know, felt satisfied in the end. What's your response to that? Yeah. So when you mentioned that before, I think what I told you was I find it really interesting because even though every situation is different, in my experience, when someone tells me it worked out, if I get an opportunity to kind of look under the hood and see what actually happened, the answer is it did not actually work out. What happened is that policyholder took substantially less than they were entitled to. And they were happy enough with it. And it's kind of this interesting thing. And there's there are reasons for it. But in the US, we have been conditioned that although you were expected to pay your premiums and you were expected to adhere to your obligations under the contract, the insurance company is not. And the insurance company <laughs> likely will not adhere to their obligations under the contract. And you're just conditioned that way. So you can be kind of the most vicious business person out there or the most like chill laid back person. And either way, you're like, hey, it's insurance. They're not going to pay me fairly. But it wasn't always that way. There's always been insurance disputes. Obviously, some of the earliest documented recorded cases coming out of the UK had to do with insurance disputes. However, fundamentally, kind of in the late 90s, the way that insurance claim handling was being done in the United States shifted. And now it is actually the status quo that you are delayed, you were denied, or you were underpaid. Interesting. So I think if if we if we think about that, we can we can recognize that. And as I'm reflecting on this, this is unrelated to property insurance, but I was in a car accident in high school. It was not my fault. Somebody hit me and my car rolled over. I was totally fine. And you know, I reacted in a certain way that if I hadn't, then it would have been very bad for the other person and somebody might have died. Maybe me, maybe his kids. I don't know. But what ended up happening with his insurance is he accepted fault outright, fortunately, because I was a teenager at the time. But his insurance company gave us a, a really decent value for my car, which was completely destroyed. And we just accepted it and went along because, I mean, I felt fine. I didn't feel injured. And it's 16 years ago, right? So I'm, you know, I'm fine. But what it could have happened is it could have been a lot more expensive for his insurance company. And I'm seeing now that that can probably easily translate into the real estate investing space where they gave us a, a good value for the car. It was enough for us to go away, but you know, maybe we were underpaid. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. So 16 years ago, we hadn't quite finished rounding that corner of changing the way claims were being handled in the United States. So you could have been on either side of that. There's no way to really know. But it is fascinating because I think there's nothing wrong with the attitude of, look, I'm happy, so I don't need to fight. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think sometimes where lawyers, in my personal opinion, tend to run afoul of like general societal acceptance and why 
you know, so many people don't actually think those lawyer jokes are jokes, right? <laughs> is because lawyers are perceived as encouraging the systemic problem to perpetuate so they can make money, right? And that probably is true to some extent, but it's not always true. And in a case where you truly aren't being paid what you're entitled to, the law firms that do that type of work serve a very valuable societal purpose. It's only when there truly is no dispute and those disputes are being manufactured, right? So we're kind of in a place in this country right now where I think all the personal injury lawyers, I mean, <laughs> ambulance ambulance chaser shouldn't even be a word, right? But it is, and it is because there's perception that these lawyers are out there like ginning up cases. Well, they're not causing accidents or at least shouldn't be. And, you know, but nevertheless, there's kind of that general perception. However, when you get into like property damage and property claims, there really isn't that perception. You might hear about like storm chasing contractors, but the reason there isn't that perception, I think, is because people know kind of deep down that the insurance company is not treating them fairly, even if ultimately they choose not to get help. Wow. So I'd really like to dive into some of the top reasons or, or ways in which that you see people get you know, underpaid or denied on a property damage insurance claim. Because there are probably a few you know, through lines here where, where folks think, you know, I'm, I'm never going to do well on this anyway. So if I get anything, then I'll be happy. Whereas per their policy, which they might not even understand because there's a lot of legalese in there, they might be entitled to, to more than that. So what are you know, some through lines that you see? Yeah. So obviously I start by making a bunch of generalizations, right? Because I haven't <laughs> seen that specific policy or that specific mm -hmm. loss. However, in a perfect world, the way this insurance should work is whatever happened to your property after you pay your deductible, you should not be out a penny to restore the property to the condition it was in prior to that thing that happened. Okay. Now it even gets more fun and complicated if you have an older property with maybe building materials that are no longer allowed or types of construction that are no longer allowed. Because again, in a perfect world, you actually would be able to upgrade. And I don't mean upgrade like cheap, you know, countertops and now we want granite and marble, but you should be able to upgrade that property so it complies with the current codes and the current building standards, right? The concept. The concept being you never would have had to take off that asbestos roof, right? If something hadn't happened to that asbestos roof. So it's not really about giving you a benefit. It's about we can't functionally restore you to the same position because we can't go put illegal and harmful asbestos up. So with that as kind of like our backdrop, the way that people are unpaid, unpaid or underpaid kind of comes in just a handful of areas. The first one is denying the what we call the scope of damage and carriers do that often. You're looking at a property and it's messed up and suddenly the game comes, well, we think this was caused by that storm and this wasn't, so we'll pay for this, but not this. So that's the first area of scope. The second area is valuation, right? The insurance companies use computers for pretty much everything as we all do, right? But the reason that's an odd statement is one of the things they do is they employ, most of them use the exact same computer software to tell them what it's going to cost to fix something. Most of these people do not have construction experience. They are not contractors. They are not going to be performing any work, but they plug into a computer and it says, oh, in New York City, sheetrock costs this much, right? And they claim that that's all been independently verified, but they have no information on how it's been independently verified ever. Oh, literally, you know, hundreds of depositions 
maybe thousands, not a single adjuster has ever known an example of verifying pricing ever. It's the craziest thing. So that's kind of the valuation issue, right? And then finally, the way they kind of tie that together is with sometimes this misconstruction of policy. And it's not necessarily a misconstruction where they say, well, we don't cover this or we don't cover that, or that's only covered in these circumstances. Where the problem comes in is that is usually a large carrier using their own internal policies and guidelines of which you are neither privy nor did you agree to, right? So you're almost fighting blindfolded because you haven't been told the method and the rules with which they will be applying to your claim. And now you're having to deal with that. Well, that's not what you agreed to. And in fact, in most states, doing so when that's in contravention of the actual written insurance policy, doing so can actually lead to penalties and attorney fees in many states. Wow. So I guess how many of these sounds like the insurance companies, many of their policies, you know, fly afoul what state laws actually are. And that only kind of comes out in litigation. But does that lead to, you know, a change on their part? Or do they figure that, hey, we're still benefiting by not changing anything because we're only getting taken to court by these handful of people? We're not changing it. Like, how does that shape out? Yeah. So will an insurance company ever admit on the record that they are intentionally flouting certain states' laws or general (laughs) good claims handling practices because they make more money? No, they'll never admit to that. However, there certainly is anecdotal data to indicate that that's the case, right? Certain things where you see a carrier get absolutely hammered in court by a jury or a judge and still see that problem persist. Or you see that problem slightly morph, right? So the big thing in the Gulf Coast over the last year has been additional living expenses. When you have a storm and you can't occupy your house or a fire, anything else that could happen to any of your properties. And if you're investing and you're holding with tenants, this is equally as important for you because you don't have additional living expense coverage, but you usually do have loss of use coverage and that's going to reimburse you for rent and may even allow you to take care of those tenants to comply with your state's law who suddenly went homeless, right? So so this is very important. And after hurricanes, Laura and Delta, which hit Southwest Louisiana, we started hearing from one of the country's largest carriers that they were telling people, well, electricity and running water considered amenities. So we don't owe for additional living expenses. As long as there is a room (laughs) that is completely enclosed, you have a livable home, okay? (laughs) okay? Like, you know, look, there's an aspect of that. Like, It really kind of feels like the children are starving in China, like adage that all of our parents told us to get us to eat, right? Mm -hmm. But but contractually, you still are obligated to pay for these things. So they shut that down pretty hard after the hurricanes because I think they realized or some lawyer told them, you understand that you were about to get decimated in the court of public opinion, in the court of law, wherever you could possibly get decimated, you will do so, right? So then you fast forward in the Gulf South one year later to Hurricane Ida. And you think we're not going to see the same thing, right? We're definitely not going to see the same thing. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw the same thing again, right? Hmm. Um, So there's almost this sense sometimes, even without direct evidence of how much can we get away with because it saves us money. So even if ultimately we get slapped with some penalties or slapped with some attorney fees for one person, it's all a numbers game. And keep in mind, insurance companies are literally in the business of figuring out the numbers and gambling based on probabilities. And again, 
you know, I think you mentioned one of the things that this show does really great is get people out of the Wall Street casino and into investing, right? But here's the thing. When the casino gambles, is it really gambling? No. Mm-mm. They they know that the probability is in their favor. So when you're purchasing a policy, which you should absolutely do, I'm very pro-insurance. I do not think you shouldn't have insurance, okay? But when you're purchasing a policy, the insurance company has already looked at those numbers and said, okay, well, Taylor lives over here. And here's the type of weather that happens here. And here's how much his property is worth. And here's the probability that something will happen. And if something does happen, here's the way we're going to adjust these claims. So we will make money pretty much no matter what happens to Taylor's property, at least when you look at our whole portfolio and spread it across all of Taylor's neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would not be writing in your area. They just wouldn't. So you're already involved unwillingly, probably, you're already involved in kind of a fixed investment. So making sure that you reduce the amount that's paid on claims is a very effective financial way to make sure that portfolio stays viable. From the insurance company's perspective, if I understand. From the insurance company's perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's not that, you know, like people come in, especially individual homeowners, not so much the investors, crying like i've been a customer of this carrier for 35 years and my great 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 grandfather was on the board and why do they hate they don't hate you they're protecting their investment and and you're the victim of that so i think when you when you approach it from that mindset it becomes less personal and it becomes more about business interesting okay that's a good way to think about it now something that i wonder here is especially from a commercial real estate investing standpoint where we really look at you know the NOI and the numbers to to really see what we think our values are going to be in the future. I think I see a lot of people underestimating two things. And one of those is property taxes in the future, which we're not discussing here. And then the other is insurance on their property because maybe they're buying a property that's underinsured and they need to bring it up or maybe they want to, you know, think they can juice the return by by getting it underinsured. And I wanted to, you know, kind of probe this conversation to ask, you know, how does investors kind of deliberately choosing to underinsure their property factor into this? Now, obviously, you're you're probably not going to get involved in the case where you think you know this is underinsured, you don't have a chance. But I just wanted to bring up that that topic of being adequately insured in the first place because the insurance companies are not always the bad guys, right? Sometimes you don't have the right policy, straight up. That's true, and you know, so there's a few issues to unpack there, and the coolest part about that is I think you just did something that across thousands of clients, they have never acknowledged to me, even though sometimes I know it's true, (laughs) which is intentional underinsurance, Mm -hmm. right? And the whole reason is it's dollars and cents. Whether you're an investor or an individual person, you are choosing to underinsure your property sometimes because it will, the perception is that it will save you money. Of course, again, you took a gamble without the same data that the insurance company had, right? Mm-hmm. You're assuming that nothing will happen, but they kind of know if it's your time or not, right? So, but there's bigger problems within that. So the first thing is, if you're intentionally underinsuring yourself, there's nothing that can really be done. There are states that will hold agents and brokers accountable for selling less insurance than they should, but there's usually some standard for that. Like you had to tell them what you wanted and they didn't get it, or they failed to inform you of something. If you're intentionally underinsuring your property, the agent or broker did exactly what you hired them to do. They did nothing less and nothing more. And you can't really sue them for not doing more than you wanted them to, right? Yeah. So that's the first step. And, you know, in 
cases of accidental underinsurance, that's a place we would look, right? But where people really get tripped up on this because they don't ask the questions is you have to think about how we buy insurance, which is so unique from anything else. You just mentioned all the due diligence that you would do. You didn't mention all of it, but you mentioned some of the due diligence that you would do on a commercial real estate investment, right? Mm -hmm. The key being you would do due diligence. (laughs) Yeah. What does that look like (laughs) in purchasing insurance? You say, hey, I got a property. Here's the specs on it. It's about this big. It's worth this much. Get me insurance. And then your agent prints out a form that usually has three different companies listed on it, a couple of specs. Hey, here's how much coverage you get. Here's how much it costs. Circle one, I'll get it bound, pay me. And then what happens? Three weeks later, that policy shows up in the mail. You had no freaking idea what it said, honestly. Like (laughs) Other than the information that ended up being on the first page, you didn't know what their definition of damage was. Mm -hmm. You didn't know often if certain perils were excluded. You didn't know if there were caps on certain types of damage. That's usually not disclosed on that initial sheet that the agent or broker will go through with you when they're bidding it out, right? So A... You got to be a better business person if you're investing and you're purchasing insurance. Ask to see the policy, see what's covered. That's the first step. And why am I bringing that up? Because even in an intentional underinsurance situation, you may be more screwed than you realize because you may have coinsurance penalties, right? So, you know, let's use a million dollar property. We think it's worth a million dollars. We intentionally underinsure it for $500,000. Okay. And now it burns to the ground. We're only getting $500,000 in the typical insurance situation. You can come to me until you're blue in the face, but I will not be able to get you an additional $500,000. <laughs> yeah. But what happens if there's a co-insurance penalty that says if you fail to insure the property for its value, you will essentially eat that under insurance with us, right? So now you're underinsured by 50% which means your $500,000 payment just became 250,000. Oh man. They will withhold because they don't want you being able to max out a policy in an underinsurance situation. The concept is if you're maxing out the policy, it should be a total loss. So if you've got something significantly less than a total loss, you shouldn't be maxing out that policy simply by purchasing less insurance than you need. So they will reduce that for you out of the goodness of their hearts. So you need to make sure that you know whether you're purchasing a policy, and this happens a lot with commercial properties with coinsurance penalties. Interesting. Now, something I want to make sure to touch on uh, that you mentioned earlier in the conversation was you know, replacement of your property. And you know, I've owned a frank older, you know, multifamily, and I live in an older property. You know, it's it's a nice place, but you couldn't build it this way anymore. And, and in a time where we've seen huge increases in material prices and huge increases in labor costs and all of those things, and the insurance companies have, I guess, one model that they use for these things, they all use that. How is that adjusted to you know this inflationary environment that I don't think is going away anytime soon? But the fact is, prices have gone up. Has the compensation you know adjusted for that? Or is that another topic of you know contention? It's a massive topic topic of contention because again they're using the software to tell you and tell themselves for that matter how much it's going to cost to change this building right or to rebuild this building but it doesn't take into account sometimes the appropriate manner of construction what the current costs are even they update these pricing matrices like monthly okay and if you go compare those prices to on the store like a week later it's out of date 
And you question whether it's been out of date for months, right? I think there's probably a lag on a lot of those updates. There's no real evidence one way or the other. And they'll tell you that they do monthly surveys. So they claim that they're caught up on pricing, but labor and material go through the roof. And especially after an event, they get even higher. So this is a massive area of contention that I have to deal with on a daily basis. And I think we've gotten really, really good at showing insurance companies what it's actually going to take to fix a property and kind of walking them into, in what we call bad faith states, walking them into the trap of letting them underpay our clients so they will owe those penalties and attorney fees, which allows my work to essentially be free, right? That's what I'm trying to do is get is not have you come out of pocket for my work, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually get them what they need in order to fix this. But so, look, sometimes it's simple. It's like specialty materials, like clay tile roofs and stuff. But even just an older house, they don't make them that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're entitled to have it made the way it was made, unless there's a code problem or something like that. But, you know, I'm right now I'm in all these roofs and in all these attics because of these hurricanes. And I'm seeing some of this like gorgeous, like tongue and groove decking that you just can't find anymore, you know, and the insurance company wants to pay to just like pop, throw some plywood up there instead. And I'm like, no, like if if they choose to go with the plywood, that's up to them, but they're entitled to be paid for this beautiful handcrafted tongue and groove decking that you just can't find anymore. And you can't get craftsmanship like that. Yeah. Wow. We have, we have a slate roof on my home and you know, I love it, but nobody's building houses with slate roofs anymore. I mean, you're not really seeing that. And I would want to, if, if something happened, I would want to get slate again. I wouldn't want to go to, you know, a standard asphalt shingle because it's, it's not the same, right? Slate just looks different and looks, looks better in my opinion. I don't want to get too far away from that term. You said bad faith state. So I can't get too far away from that without asking what that means. So that's a state where if insurance companies behave in certain ways, you could be entitled to penalties on top of what you're owed contractually under your insurance contract as well as entitlement to attorney fees. Different states, different rules. Those penalties can be really, really big or not so big. The attorney fees can be really, really big or not so big. It kind of depends. There's a million different ways to kind of skin that cat. If I was using Louisiana as an example, it's a 50% penalty of the underpayment. So if they underpay you by a million dollars, you get an additional $500,000 on top of that. You can get up to that amount plus your attorney fees paid. Florida, not so big on the penalties, but really big on the attorney fees. It's really nice in that way because attorneys will actually take cases where you were underpaid by almost nothing. So if you're one of those people where like, you know, because it's a game, right? So the lawyer needs to make money on the case and insurance companies know this. So in some states, they will intentionally short you just enough that they think attorneys won't want to get involved in your case, right? (laughs) Uh, again, probably no proof that they're intentionally doing it, but anecdotally sure seems like it. So in a state like that, where you can get attorney fees, the attorney can take a case where only 10, 15, $20,000 is at issue. And if the insurance company doesn't pay it quickly, they could end up getting slapped with a two, three, $400,000 attorney fee bill after five, 10 years of litigation. Right. And you still get your 20 grand that in states where there is no bad faith, probably no lawyer would have even touched your case. Right. So so those, those statutes are really good. Every time tort reform comes around in the context of car accidents, one of the things the carriers do is take a shot at the bad faith statutes in those states. <laughs> so if you see that that is up and you see that your legislatures are considering repealing or somehow watering down your state's bad faith statutes, be aware that that is the only thing that is 
keeping people in business that can help you when you have a claim. Because if that goes away, the carrier has no disincentive to underpay you. In fact, quite the opposite. It becomes a war of attrition. They have a team of lawyers on staff. So then the fee structure shifts. The attorneys in your state now want to charge you out of pocket hourly to help you because there's no legislation to help you out. And now it's a war of attrition that you will lose, right? So if you ever see those going away or about to go away, call your legislator and say, hey, don't do that. This protects me. Yeah, that's interesting. It definitely gives you more of an opportunity, more of a standing, and it incentivizes the insurance companies to kind of, you know, to go with a building analogy to hit the nail on the head, right? To get the the right amount, you know? Yeah, that's the concept. I still think that, you know, they've done the math and realized that so few people get help comparatively that they don't need to hit the nail on the head and get it exactly mm-hmm. right. But at least when they don't, there's some remedy for you that allows you not to be in the hole. Yeah. Interesting. Good point. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. That's a, that's a lot of great lessons in here. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Galen, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Awesome. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? (laughs) I bought a barbecue grill when I was 14 years old and probably was able to use that grill. I I had good teachers. I was able to use that grill to pretty much pay for every single thing I needed through high school and um, even a little bit into college. Like by cooking for people? Yeah, just by cooking for people. I was pretty good. I'm originally from Texas. We know our way around a grill. And, um, you know, I think it taught me a lot of valuable lessons early on that you don't really need much to make money, right? You just need a lot of drive and a couple of tools. And uh, I guess that's what taught me to kind of invest back in yourself when you get money. Nice. I like that. I like that. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Uh, Mass torts. Uh, So lawyers have these investment vehicles called mass torts. And what they tell you is it's a passive investment, right? You purchase the cases, you send the cases off to someone, someone works them. And then in five years, I guess there's a magical check and everyone's rich and they swim around at a pool like Scrooge McDuck. And that's not the way it happens. (laughs) 
you know, I think I, I'm like kind of wincing as, I, as I'm saying this, but I wanted to be honest, right? Because the show is called Passive Wealth and it's about investing in real estate. But, you know, my takeaway was if it sounds too good to be true, it is absolutely too good to be true. Yeah, 100 percent. I'd totally go with that. And I think, uh, you know, any experienced investor, no matter what you're investing in, will probably look back and may say, you know, to name a, at least one, maybe a couple, usually a few investments they made that, you know, didn't, uh, didn't pan out, but it sounds like that one didn't work out for you. No, no, not at all. It's all right. We live, we learn. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Still here, still kicking. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. So I guess they're kind of different between business and investing. So investing, it's the biggest lesson I've ever learned is it's all about due diligence. But in business, I guess I tend to differ a little bit. I believe in business, you shouldn't focus on your competitors. You should focus on the entire field. And what I mean by that is people ask me who I'm competing with, who our law firm's competing with. I'm not competing with the three or four other firms in the country that do work at our scale. I'm competing with Google and Apple and Amazon, right? And I think in a global economy, from a business standpoint, you should be looking at the entire field and you should be moderating your behavior to beat everyone else in the field because we don't have the attention spans we used to have. And we're no longer looking at competitors on a micro level. Nice. I like that. I like that. The broad thinking and also I feel like worrying about a competitor just kind of shuts you down. Whereas looking at the whole field, it's giving you a, a, a broader picture and maybe a little bit more inspiration rather than um, maybe it's the wrong word, but like vindictiveness or, you know, just <laughs> trying to fight with one guy. So. I like that. Well, Galen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for all the great lessons. Really interesting. This is a interesting topic uh, for me is new for me. You've uh, opened my eyes here. I've learned a few things and I'm sure our listeners have as well. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you or, you know, uh, anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. So we have a website, insuranceclaimhq.com. And then we are on all the social medias. So hit us there and we'll get back with you. We're even on TikTok. But if we're being honest, I am not personally going to respond to anything on TikTok because <laughs> I can't figure out how it works. I don't even have a TikTok. So, you know, I don't, I don't blame you there, but that one uh, definitely has, has gotten big. And uh, once again, thank you for joining us today. Everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helped us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every show. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe no matter what podcast app you use, and we'll catch you here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.